This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. Tēnā koutou e te whānau. Nau mai haere mai ki te wakawitiwiti kōrero marunga te irirangi ki tēa. Welcome to our show, Talking About Seeing, here on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4. Each week, people who don't see and some who don't hear as well are going to talk to each other about what makes their lives tick. We have lots to talk about, so here goes. Hello, I am Jeff Aiken, and I'm going to have a conversation with Christine and Elizabeth as part of Talking About Seeing, an oral history project for the Alexander Turnbull Library in Wellington, as well as a radio programme on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4. Today is the 15th of March 2022, and this recording is being made at Access Radio. Good morning, Elizabeth and Christine. How are both of you? Good. I'm fine, thank you. And you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk to both of you, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you both over the last little while. I think you're both quite inspirational people. So, Christine, can I start with you? Yeah. Would you be able to give us a little bit of background about yourself before you had your accident? Right. Um... I was a retired nurse and I had been nursing in the rehabilitation field, so worked with people with spinal injuries and traumatic brain injuries. Prior to that I had worked in the mental health field. Before I trained as a nurse I had um, trained as a teacher and decided I didn't like that field of work. I think I was scared of all the children. So retrained in my late twenties, um, after I'd had my children. So yeah. I had returned to New Zealand to care for my mum, who was elderly and unwell, um, but had been living in Australia for the past fifteen years prior to that. So. so you've had quite a lot of experience in nursing, and I think you've told me before that you taken on a bit the neurological rehabilitation aspects of nursing, would that be right? That's correct. I worked in the traumatic brain injury unit at the Royal Rehab Centre in Sydney for 11 years. So that's really been your passion regarding nursing. Mm -hmm. So then you came back to New Zealand. Yes. And everything was going fine. Yes, I re- uh, adapted to the semi-retirement lifestyle and um, my children returned to New Zealand and we re-established in Taranaki. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, very good. So what I'm driving at in all of this is to try and get an idea of what sort of life you had prior to your accident and I'm particularly interested in if you want the social vision aspects of your life, what kind of a person would you describe yourself as? I had always been a working individual. Um, 
And after my semi-retirement coming back to New Zealand, I didn't like being of less value to the community as I saw it, not necessarily as the community saw it. And so I went back to work part-time and worked at um, Turangamari unit at, at Girls High. I was a keen gardener and uh, enjoyed walking, not just strolls, but actually going for, for long, well, you know, 10, 15k walks. And being, being basically, I was an in, thoroughly independent person. Yeah, so that changed. <laughs> So would you be able to tell us a little bit about what happened? Right. I had a small car accident. I was parked outside my property and was waiting to pull into the stream of traffic. And the front end of my car got hit by a a vehicle coming along the road. Um, It was a very minor accident. But I sort of, when the car was struck, I went dizzy, I got dizzy, and I couldn't see things, things were blurry, and this only lasted for about three or four minutes, and I thought, oh, it's just the shock, it's just the impact of being hit, so I got out of the car and promptly organised all the details and got the fir- a, a, a company to come and get the car to get it repaired and carried on with my busy life. Um, had to go and pick up my granddaughter, that's where I had been heading, I had to pick her up from school. And we walked home and I got home and I still felt that my eyes weren't quite right. And I thought, oh gosh, I've got a partially torn retina. Being a nurse, you tend to self-diagnose. It's not necessarily the best. So I rested and what have you for a couple of days and I thought, but this vision thing's not getting any better. And my grandson who comes over one day on the weekend, we were busy preparing breakfast and he said to me, Grandma, why have you only buttered half my toast? And I thought, have I? (laughs) And he proceeded to show me, by turning the bread around, that I had only buttered half of the toast. And I thought, hmm, this is not a slightly damaged retina. This might need to be seen by medical... So I rested for another couple of days. So seven or eight days after the little traffic accident I presented at the doctors um, and I was told I went went up to hospital and had a CT and was told that I had had a, a bleed and I had a harmonious hemanopia which is the left side of my vision in both eyes was now absent so yeah there had been the area of the brain that had uh, sustained the damage through the bleed it was um, related to the visual input and uh, yeah so I I had lost the significant portion of of my vision but I could still see and so you can't it was very hard to sort of grieve for and adjust to this loss of sight when you still have sight but you don't have full sight and I learnt in the pursuing months that um you can't trust what you see. You can't be sure that you are getting the whole picture or that the picture you're actually seeing is accurate. So yeah, it was a, a huge change to my life and lifestyle and the role I fulfilled 
within my family and community. So I think people will find it quite difficult to understand what it is that you have experienced, and I certainly find it quite difficult to understand. So you had a left hemianopia, which means, in principle, that you've lost the left side of your vision. It's correct. But I think that it is a lot more than simply losing the left side of your vision. I think that if you can imagine your central vision being split in half, it's quite a difficult challenge in terms of knowing what you're looking at. Can you elaborate a bit on that part of it? I still struggle to come to terms with what I'm not seeing because you look at something and you think that you see it. It's, 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 it sounds bizarre. How can you possibly not understand what you don't see? But I can go to a shop and I can see a price ticket perhaps on a lounge suite and I see the dollar sign and I might see the three I don't see the digits however many in the middle but I see the last figure or maybe even the last two figures so I might perceive that to say that that lounge suite is $379 where in fact it's 32000 $799. So you miss the bit in the middle. You have to, I have to actually change the position of my head to encounter with my left eye the gap that I, or sorry, with my right eye, the gap that my left eye doesn't see. So I see the things, yeah, there's that gap in the middle. So you can be walking down the road and I might see a car at a distance and then I lose that car, I can't see it, it's gone and then a millisecond later it's back in my vision. So I see it with one part of one eye and then it takes a second to come back into the range in the other eye. Elizabeth, you've been with your grandmother a lot and you must have noticed a bit of a change in your grandmother. Would you be able to tell us what do you notice? Yes. Um, well, originally when she had first had her stroke, she had to put red tape all over everywhere so she could see things like the edge of the bench so her stuff didn't fall off or on the ranch slider because it was had clear gloss in it and she couldn't figure out whether it was a portal and yeah. But since then, she's been improving and she's taken off most of the tape. So you've noticed that there's been an improvement? Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. And I think, Christine, you've noticed not an improvement, that you're coming to terms with it more than it's improving. That's right, and it's an adjustment, and it's a making... Like, the ranch slide is a really great example because I don't see the solid edge of the ranch slider. I see the glass in the middle and the joining section. So I actually have to track with my head until I find the red tape and then I finally get to seeing the edge. So the safety aspect of living independently 
is quite has be, had become quite scary until you learn to adapt and um, put things in place to make you bring that loss more to the point so that you don't walk through a glass door and yeah burn yourself on a on a four point hot point for cooking on the stove because you don't see the the left elements they're just not there in your vision so so yeah, we changed also she had to get a induction hob so she could just click the buttons and it wasn't actually hot when she touched it so because she didn't really feel that safe with the stove what other things did your granny have to do to help her with this well she got a really big tv with a really smart sort of function because well yeah and she got a tv that featured alexa and it could change the channels for her if she just clicked a microphone button so we use talk to text a lot don't we We've yeah to, we uh, use yeah. talk to text a lot yeah mm. and it's quite like that mm. You've talked a little bit about the contrast that you need to help you. And I think you mentioned to me before that you have changed the colour of your shoes to help you know where you're putting your feet. Yeah, it sounds silly, but I had to buy a whole new shoe wardrobe. It was such a punishment. But um, my my normal shoes that have a black sole... I find extremely difficult to, as you say, see on a footpath. If you're putting a dark shoe onto a dark grey pavement, you don't actually see where that foot is, and um, or you don't see the edge of the footpath. So I changed my shoes to having a, a lighter um, sole. Uh, not necessarily the most stylish shoes, but functional, and um, I guess that kind of sums up in some ways the changes that you have to do. You have to change and have function as the most important factor in what, when you're buying things. We, Elizabeth talked briefly about how I didn't feel safe cooking and I was needing to order in pre-prepared meals which part of my image of myself was a a cook and a mother and a feeder so that role was taken away from me and um, to overcome that I have changed my oven and and cooking style so we now have an induction top so we can um, or so I can with my grandchildren still cook and um, teach them skills that I valued Cooking and baking is a different thing altogether, isn't it, Elizabeth? Yes. What happened when we tried to make cupcakes? The mixture all spilt everywhere because Grandma couldn't quite see the bowl right. Oh dear. Transferring oh dear. from one object to another object when you're you've got something balancing on a spoon and you're passing that midline, you lose sight of where the spoon is and what have you so it's a matter of sticking one's finger in the muffin 
hole in your muffin pan and bringing the spoon to the finger before you tip it. And we took several lessons learning that, didn't we? <laughs> we had some very and messy cupcakes. It did cupcakes. not go very well. It did oh, not dear. go very well. Well, Christine, you've mentioned some of the difficulties that you have with reading figures. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about how that impacts, say, on the intricacies of going to the bank or just going shopping? Um, well, it, it's huge because you, I sp- had spoken to you earlier about how when I first came out of hospital, it was prior to Christmas and I thought, oh, what's this shopping like? I don't feel right going into the shops. I can't do that on my own yet. I'll just shop online. And so I promptly went online. I had my little talk to text and text to talk app on my iPad and so it was reading me things. But it it was reluctant to um, read. It, It would describe the picture, but it didn't actually pick up the price tag on it. So I saw several toys that I thought, oh, what an amazing bargain, and promptly ordered several toys, which I thought were like $79, and um, went to the checkout, and and I had ordered products over $4,500 because of just not seeing the bits in the middle. I thought, oh, right, I've got to stop that. Can't go shopping anymore, which was a huge (laughs) blast. But, um, and so now, unfortunately, I need to shop with someone else. So it's once again that feeling of being able to do things yourself and try and, and know that you, you can do them is, is, is more of an impact in some ways than the actual sight loss. It's uh, the loss of self part of that's that self that you have developed over the years into being you know a cook and a cleaner and a and a sewer and and doing the knitting and all those homebody type jobs that I took on as a role and thrived on they're all taken well they're not taken away they are adjusted and and take time to redevelop and accept that what you're actually doing is not what it used to be and that being okay. Sewing and knitting? Yes. Are you back managing sewing and knitting? Yes, it's good, except it's um, different, for a better word. Different? (laughs) Not like it used to be. Grandma used to use the sewing machine, but now she can't see very well. It's too dangerous because she might not be able to see where her hand is on the fabric, and she might get pricked. That would not be good. What about getting out and about, Christine? How does yeah. how do you manage simple things like crossing the roads? Okay. And well, I am not confident crossing the roads yet. Um, I have done cane training. The, the New Zealand the Blind Low Vision has provided cane training, which has been absolutely fantastic. Um, prior to that, I didn't feel safe venturing anywhere other than 
the block that I live on because I can do all left turns all the way around. So I, my neighbours and people that live in my area know me very well because I walk round and round the block because I'm limited to, to where I can go apart from that. But other mobility is, is I now use taxis to get about or depend on family and friends to, to take me to places. Um, which, once again, is that when you're in the garden and all of a sudden you think, right, yes, I need to prune that and I need to get the fertiliser for that, to actually plan to get that is, is now a sort of two or three week process, whereas it used to be, I'll oh, just go and have a shower, get changed and nip down the shop and get what you want. So life slows down. It must be very frustrating for somebody who used to walk long distances and enjoy that. Extremely annoying. <laughs> um, I just wish someone would develop, like we have all this technology and everything available to us, but it's not necessarily the technology that we need. Um, I, I, I wait for the day that someone develops an app for your phone that you can hold it out and see if t- it can tell you if the, the road is clear to cross rather than relying on one's hearing um, and other senses. And and I just as I developed confidence and I had got to the stage where I could cross the road, I was doing it with the, the trainer from the Blind Foundation and it was and two electric vehicles came along, which of course you can't hear like you can an ordinary car. So that sort of blew what confidence she had developed to smithereens because, oh, right, so not only can I not see the things, I cannot hear them as well. And um, once you lose your sight, you realise that um, your other senses are particularly important in getting around the, your, your um, environment. What about social interactions? Um... I've touched briefly prior to this on how losing your vision, you lose a sense of part of yourself, the the personality and the character that you've developed. Um, I had worked as a volunteer in an organisation within the in the communities for several years, and. Um, had always felt uh, a valued part of, of that community. And when I returned after my stroke, I um, was told ever so kindly that I'd need a rest and um, advised to go and uh, have a rest in, in the staff room. I felt quite um, devalued because I wasn't consulted as to whether I needed a rest or not and yet perhaps I wasn't seen as a valued participant within their group because I had lost part of my sight. I don't know whether they were particularly mindful that I need that or they they felt that it would be stressful and everything else but didn't 
take into account that I have still some autonomy over whether or not I feel I can cope in a situation. And so that alteration in, in your value has, has made a, a big impact on how I interact socially now. Um, little things like at Christmas time, I'd always been the woman in the kitchen preparing and, and cleaning up and what have you. But because I don't see the plates quite so well, or people are fearful that I might not put the plate in, in or, you know, I might not be able to do the task as well as, as I used to, that you don't, you're not given the opportunity to do the task at all. Um, and so that's that alteration in your, your perceived ability yeah, can be devaluing and yeah, it's a loss that you have to accept, well you have to deal with and take the time to explain to people or show people that you can do these things still. So sometimes there's a social belief that because you've lost your vision that you're useless or that you cannot do, the, do things whereas you can do things, but you just have to do them differently. Well, you've got quite a lot of experience of having to do things differently now, and I get the impression that you are happy that you're making a bit of an improvement with this. As a nurse, as an expert in this particular subject, how have you applied that to yourself? With reluctance. <laughs> I... Like I say, you have to adjust and learn new ways. I have a great belief in the concept of neuroplasticity, that new pathways uh, are developed in the brain. And I know I'm not going to get my sight back, but I know that I can develop new ways to do things, new ways to recognise things by utilising my other senses. And so the knowledge that medically that this can't be changed is a, is a concrete fact, but the belief that you can you can change the, reset, the way the information is received and utilise that information to allow you to to um, still do a task and achieve in doing that task, even though it might be a different result to what you normally had, has has been for me the greatest thing to be able to to acknowledge. Yep, okay, this has happened. We can't undo it. No magic pill's gonna undo it. Elizabeth says to me, Grandma, how can we fix your eyes? Can I donate money to someone so to for them to develop something? And you have to we have we've talked about how that it's not the eyes that are actually damaged. It's the area of the brain that's damaged, isn't it, Elizabeth? Oh. That receives the message. So that until we can fix or develop it. Um, 
well, you can't, uh, until research looks at repairing damage caused by bleeds and strokes, that, yeah, you can't do anything about that, but we can look at the practical ways to apply different things. Yes, like maybe we could send you into schools, or Graham put in some new neurons in your actual brain, and then you can work on and maybe your new neural cells could develop into that other region of the brain that was damaged, and you could get your sight back. You never know what's going to happen in the future, do you? Nope. Nope. But I hope it happens soon, because you're already old. <laughs> Ancient, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's still pretty good. <laughs> Christine, I just want to come back to one thing that we talked about earlier. On the left side of your vision, mm-hmm. you don't see anything. No. And I think that's really what I want to clarify with you, because... For a lot of people, they imagine that when you don't see anything, that you see blackness. And I don't think that would be the case for you. I think it would be correct to say you see nothing at all. That's exactly right. There's, there's nothing. It's not blackness. It's, it's so hard to describe because... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having trouble finding the, the words that I need to use, but um, at one stage, early in my recovery, I thought I was going a bit mad because I'd be sitting looking at something and and try to understand, like particularly in, I used to do a lot of word search to try and keep your brain active word searches and crossword puzzles and things like that and um, so you're looking at something and you see something that that flashes into your vision and then's gone again and you think what's that and it's was explained to me by the doctors that when you're adjusting your brain puts in what it thinks it should be there. So it sends you little messages or little visual ideas that it might be from some past experience or what it thinks should be in in there, in that situation. And so it's almost like hallucinating, but it's not. Um, yeah, and and reading it's a similar experience when you're trying to read a sentence. The brain, generally when you're reading, it works on the concept that you see the letter formation of the whole word and your brain recognises that letter formation. And so you understand that the word says elephant. But when you look at it and you're reading now, you see the E-L and the N-T. And so it might put in a completely different word into the middle because it doesn't necessarily pick up the context before and after of what's what you've read. And so, yeah, there's uh, those moments when you think, oh, perhaps I am going a bit mad <laughs> as well as 
So, yeah, understanding that that's normal, but I mean, it's not normal for a person to do that, but it's quite a common occurrence when you have a sight loss or partial loss that um, the brain tries to put in what it thinks needs to be there. And so, yes, that, that concept of not being able to trust your vision gets reinforced. That even though you you a hundred percent sure you see what you see, it's not what you see. So it's a, an unusual feeling. That's a very frustrating experience. Um, and I think you're not alone in experiencing that. I think there are quite a few people who lose their vision who experience mm. seeing things that are not there, hallucinations, which are scary yes. to everybody involved. If I had a hemianopia like my grandmother, I would probably describe the lost field in my vision, like, not like blackness, just like, it'd be a bit like floating in the void for me if I had a hemianopia. Yeah, I assume it's kind of like that for... I think that's an important aspect to this because if you don't, if, if it could be in black what you don't see, it would be a lot easier to appreciate that you're not seeing something. Yes. The fact is that you don't see it at all makes it hard for you to know, is there a car coming or isn't there a car coming? Yep. So for me, I think that's a very important thing. And I also think it's very important that you've drawn attention to the difficulties that you have with numbers and reading, because that is not evident when you think about it until you talk with somebody like yourself who has personal experience of this. Mm, that's right. Christine, I don't want Elizabeth to get bored. Right. I think we should turn to Elizabeth. Oh. Hello, hi. Elizabeth. Hi. So I am short-sighted and I have cerebral palsy, which is a motor disability and it affects my legs which means that I can't really walk without something holding me up. So, you use a wheelchair to help you with that? Well, I used to. Nowadays, not so much. And instead, I mainly use my walker, which is sitting over behind my chair. So, have you, do you think that in terms of walking with a walker, that things are getting better? Are you improving with that? Yeah. Now, it wasn't a recent accident. I had meningitis when I was a baby, and it, well, affected my cerebellum, and now I can't really walk. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, you are fantastic to be able to tell us this it's extraordinary and you know so much I think it's what keeps you interested isn't it you love all of l this learning that you have yes now when I was about three I had SDR because I used to have muscle spasms and I couldn't control myself can you explain what SDR is SDR, well, it's a neural 
surgery. Well, it was more of a Botox thing, but... But it started off as Botox, didn't it? Yeah, it started yeah. off as Botox, and then I went to have surgery to... stop the neural signals so that I didn't have muscle spasms. Mm -hmm. And where did you go to have your surgery? I went over to America where I met a neurosurgeon called Dr. Parks. Dr. Parks. And is he the person who did your surgery? Yes. And did he do a good job? Yes. It was, he was very nice. And so do you have muscle spasms now? No. No. And it's made it easier for you to get around? Yes. Fantastic. Now, later in life, when I was four, I went over to America again, <laughs> and I had surgery with a physio called Beck. You had... Physio. wasn't surgery, you had no, physiotherapy. Physio. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. I just got my words jumbled. Yes. yes. And so, so you went back for a physio intensive, yeah? Yes. Why did you do that? So that I could strengthen my muscles. And by the time I came back from there, I could take a few steps on my own. Mm -hmm. But I just stopped practicing over time, so my muscles couldn't remember it. And right now I'm back to standing up and doing the school dances, not holding on to my walker, and still not doing the leg movements exactly, but just, just I'm moving my arms around. So now you can stand independently for a few seconds or a minute or so on your own? Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Prior to that, you couldn't stand up on your own? What happens? Yes. What happens? Can you remember? I, I would describe not being able to stand up as well. It's, it's well prior to this, I really couldn't stand up on my own. So you're super proud of being able to stand up on your own now. Aren't yes, you? mm -hmm. and. I would describe my experience in America as, well, fun, and it absolutely changed my life. Changed your life, it did, didn't it? Yeah. Gave you confidence. Yeah, yeah. My I think confidence. it's given you confidence to do lots else with your brain as well, Elizabeth. Yes, which what? is why I'm science mad. Science mad. When did you start becoming science mad? Well, it just was. It was just, it, I just got delved because it was so interesting to learn how the world works. It's, it just, my life couldn't make sense anymore. But finding out how the world works makes you feel much more in contact with the world. Yes. What sort of things do you like in science particularly? Well, I quite like chemistry, and I've got the absolute most elaborate set with proper chemicals like copper sulfate and tartaric acid and all those sorts of things. So do you do experiments? 
Yeah, I learned that if you put a piece of aluminum foil in a copper sulfate solution, that's just copper sulfate and water, then it basically drains the color out of it. Suck, so suck, 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 suck. What happens to the color? Just goes away. Uh, yeah, it originally fades, but it kind of, but the aluminum reacts with the copper sulfate, I'd say, and sucks out the color. And what color is that that, that it sucks out? Blue, Lovely. like sky blue. Like Beautiful. And Beautiful you're, you're quite interested in astronomy and the solar system, aren't you? Yes, yes. I think you've been doing some serious calculations to help the team on Mars, haven't you? No, I'm not quite that advanced. <laughs> <laughs> but you were very interested in how th th they managed to um, get a helicopter to fly in an atmosphere with no gravity. Yes, yes. And, and so what did you look at for that? So what did you so develop? a few websites with videos of the helicopter and I also went on to NASA Kids mm -hmm. which is a website that was done by the North American Space Association. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. And for kids to learn about space. Yes. And that and from that you developed a an interest in string theories and wormholes yes. and all those. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that or are you...? Yes. Okay. Well, wormholes are currently theoretical speculations based on Einstein's general theory of relativity. But if we manage to warp space-time and create wormholes, we could even build time portals. Right. And what does a time portal en en enable you to do? It enables you to travel into the past or indefinitely into the future. Hmm. There's one catch on um, time travel portals, though. What's if that? you went back too far into the past and blink out of existence, and she wouldn't have been born at that specific time. Mm -hmm. Wow, Elizabeth. You blow me away with your knowledge. Yes. Now the other thing I wanted to talk about is white holes, which are also explained by the general theory of relativity, but they are still speculations. And in relative physics, they are the exact opposite of black holes. Instead of pulling things into them, they spew things out. I don't think I'd ever heard of white holes before, Elizabeth. I'm learning fast. Yeah, there are theoretical speculations, again, based on the theory of relativity. I but there is one thing that those might be useful for with the wormhole thing. What's that? If you went into a black hole and somehow managed to come out the other end, you might end up in a parallel universe. Okay. 
aka a universe where time runs backwards, which would make it look like the black hole on the other side was spewing stuff out. Although this type of wormhole just crimps shut in the middle and it takes an infinite amount of time for you to get from one end to the other. So you wouldn't become the stuff that's going out the other end, you'd just become dead. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so you discovered wormholes when you were looking at string theories, did you? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, to cross haystime, we need a different sort of wormhole, a traversable wormhole. Right. Wow. Well, <coughs> now we're put in our place, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you talk a little bit about what goes on in your head, which is fantastic. And you tell us a little bit about your cerebral palsy. Well. But we are also wanting to talk a little bit about the differences that you have regarding your vision. Well, I am short-sighted, and if I take my glasses off, anything out of a meter is all blurry. And I yeah. So you need your glasses on? Yes. Is it alright if I ask your granny how she finds your seeing? Uh, yes, my brother, by the way, has 20-20. Do you know what measurement you have for your vision? No, but I'd say 20-30. No, I think it's... Yeah different to that. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I'm now not exactly sure, but Lizzie, my optician, I occasionally have to go to appointments for vision checks, and sometimes I get drops in my eyes, which make my pupils dilate so they can see my retina, and they can make predictions about my vision. Christine, when did you first notice that Elizabeth had some differences regarding her vision? Initially, we weren't aware medically of any any concerns until Elizabeth used to visit me several days a week when she was a baby, and we were sitting out on our little porch veranda, and we were feeding the birds and Elizabeth had the breadcrumbs and she didn't know which direction to throw them. She couldn't see the birds, even though they were only two or three feet in front of us. She could hear the birds. She knew they were there, but she didn't know where to throw the breadcrumbs. And so we yeah, went for vision checks and things like that. And Elizabeth had a very, very strong divergent squint. So initially it was that she had a, the, the, that terrible derogatory term, a lazy eye. And so she yes, wore... I was cross-eyes. Oh, I had an eye patch because one eye was stronger than the other. and. Yeah, I did not like it. Did not like it at all, did you? So no. did they patch your better eye? 
Do you yeah, remember? Yeah, so that I, yeah, yeah. So that would have been very frustrating for you. What else did you notice with Elizabeth? As time went on, Elizabeth seemed to have difficulty in placing herself within her environment, of actually acknowledging where she was. Getting through doors was always an issue. She was either bumping into them or staying in the middle of a doorway so no one else could get through. And she developed this condition that we still have sometimes called doorway-itis. It's what Grandma tells me. Hey, you got doorway-itis. Get out of the way. Get out of the doorway. And mm-hmm. notice that she would actually be in the doorway but feeling with her hands to where the door was. And so we assumed, or and still to this day I feel it's... a her actually feeling her environment around her, that developing that sense of knowing where she is. Um, and, and when she was much younger, she didn't uh, recognise the benefits of wearing her glasses, so there were multiple pairs of glasses that were purchased and thrown across rooms and sat upon and... <laughs> I'm not wearing I these. I did not I, like it. I did not like wearing I'm like, glasses. Ah, 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 I don't want to wear my glasses. Why ah, did? Can you remember why you didn't like to wear your glasses? I, I really didn't recognize the benefits of wearing them because I was a toddler and I didn't really know any better. So and maybe it was because you didn't know that you weren't seeing things or... When you saw, what, when you put your glasses on, was there a whole new picture in front of you? Or did you, had you, was it new stuff you had to learn when you put your glasses on, or? Yeah, back when I was much younger. Mm-hmm. But you've now got used to wearing glasses. Yes. I don't mind them at all, except for my masks, which occasionally, if I don't put them on right, they make my glasses all fogged up and I can't see. Yeah. So how do you Which manage... Which is really annoying. How's school, Elizabeth? Uh, good. Back when I was younger, due to my cerebral palsy, my fine motor was not very good and I always kept forgetting the finger space so my teachers could not see what I was writing. And it just appeared like a blur to them. And it just said So how did you overcome that? Yes, I used to have an app on an iPad that I got from the Ministry of Education called Writing Wizard. And you have to trace letters and numbers and all sorts of things with your fingers. And that helped me develop my... um, self-confidence and my fine motor skills, which has been really beneficial for me because now the teachers can actually read what I'm writing. Mm -hmm. Do you use your computer much at school for learning? No, I mostly go to my lessons and that's about it. Although during the holidays, I do take my iPad home 
And during the holidays, the last summer holidays, I used to um, email Gaga. Who's Gaga? Gaga is my Aussie grandmother. Mm -hmm. So my father's mother. Mm -hmm. So you used it for Emma. Hailing her, and yes. Yep. So that was quite a lot of fun, and generally I still do. Yep. How how do you best like getting along with people? How do you like do you like communicating with people on the computer? Yes, although I do a lot of video Skyping, Gaga, so Zooming her. Very good. And otherwise at school, how does it get, how do you get on with the kids at school? Good. I only really had one true friendship and that was, was with Molly Rose, who was a really nice girl, but she moved away at the last second and I really don't know where she is. Oh. Did, sorry. Did you find it easy to make friends at school? Uh, it was kind of, it did, it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain? So, some of the things that um, we've noticed in the past for Elizabeth is in maintaining friendships is, is little things like children calling out across the, from across the playground and that she doesn't actually know who it is. She can't see their face clearly enough to identify who the child is or at the swimming pool someone's called out and she doesn't know who it is, particularly in situations where she can't, can't wear her glasses, um, like in the pool and, and things like that. But and that of course it doesn't matter when I'm asleep because my eyes are closed anyway. <laughs> that's that's <Exactly>. correct. <laughs> Elizabeth's had some assessments done regarding her vision. Can I ask you, Christine, about that? We were very fortunate that when Elizabeth was at um, the Casa, the Montessori Casa, so the preschool, um, she had had some evaluations done because her reading was excelling their library. And so they were looking at where she was developmentally uh, with her language and reading skills and were having great difficulty understanding how a child can read a book and be engrossed in a book but and could see the words to do so but could not walk down the veranda without going over the edge or being in danger. And so um, we got put in contact with Blends, which is the um, part of the, the Blind Low Vision family of, of organisations. And they organised for Elizabeth to go to Homai, which is a facility in Auckland, which has a comprehensive 
suite of therapists and um, people who can give advice and offer information about where she was at with her vision and cognition. And you got all sorts of things when you were at home, I didn't know. What can you remember? You used to talk to me about how you did some music therapy with playing the drums. Yeah, and, and I used to be like bang, 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 bang. <laughs> bang the drum. And mm. and the outcome from that was that Elizabeth did have um, vision issues and, and they supplied her with, and her family with lots of ideas about which computer to buy, what sort of keyboard would be good for her, um, how that... And that is when I got my iPad when I was back in year two and my handwriting was not good. That's right. And so they did things like having a backlit keyboard so you could distinguish the keys, having larger keys. Font or maybe they would put some stickers on it so I could distinguish the keys, which they did. And how that it was important to make sure that when you had information in front of you, it was of a size that you could read, but also that it wasn't filled up with pretty borders and illustrations that less cluttered information was much easier for you to... Yes, and we used to get a lot of things printed in large font for me to read, but generally nowadays I can read quite a lot of stuff that's in small print, unless it's absolutely tiny, but yeah. Yeah, so that, that that's improved with with wearing having patching and strengthening your eye, <coughs> hasn't it? It's that's got better. But still sometimes if you have a picture with a lot of things on it you have a little bit of trouble. So that there was a, a diagnosis of sensory processing disorder, so that some of the information is slower to process than than others and and too much visual information is difficult for Elizabeth to pick up the fine detail in it. Yes. Do you think that your vision is improving, Elizabeth? Uh, yes. Can you do more and more? Yes. What about games and things like that? Yes, I do enjoy the occasional board game. What sort of board games do you like? All sorts, just as long as it's board games. Super. So are you playing chess? Yes, I have been getting really good at chess, actually. Mm -hmm. Who do you enjoy playing chess with? My family. Who's the best person in your family to play chess? Uh, I think Mum. Oh, very good. Because then she gets to see all the moves I make and learn actually how chess works because she's actually not that good a player. Right. I think Jeff was asking you who is the best player <coughs> in your family. I think Mum. You think Mum still? Yeah. 
I have a feeling it might be you, Elizabeth. I think Dad would be the best in terms of actual strategy. Mm -hmm. But Mum, in terms of actual learning capacity for the board game, is the best. Right. Christine, it must be a joy for you to see Elizabeth making the progress that she's making. Yes, when, when Elizabeth was very small, um, we were, yeah, I mean, you, you get these lovely information sessions with the doctors, and um, the prognosis was not particularly positive for Elizabeth when she was in the neonatal unit up in New Plymouth. She was there for, I think it was seven or eight weeks, and um, at one stage she had had s scans done and they were saying that there was no no actual damage to the brain due to the meningitis. And then the dear doctor told us that he had made a mistake and uh, that there possibly was. So, so when Elizabeth was a very young baby, there were talks of her not being able to um, develop speech or um, to eat independently and and things like that. So so seeing her develop into a lovely, bright, enthusiastic, well-educated young lady is is a real positive um, for us. And her absolute hunger for learning and creativity is is a joy. Elizabeth last year wrote her first book um, and has since started on the second volume of her book in a series. So Yes, it's about two girls and they are 11 years and 8 years, so they're sisters and they're always getting into mischief. They are. Here's what I started the second volume with. After their camping trip slash survival chaos, they had just returned home and, well, it's a long story. But I'll tell you one thing for sure, the younger sister was not happy. All she was saying in the middle of a plane ride was, Ah, no, 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 I don't want to go to school. <laughs> <laughs> So your next book's about their adventures at school, is it? Is that what I understand? Yeah, it's called The School Club and Other Fabulous Adventures with the Sisters. Right. And you're planning and to... it's an all-in-one book, a bit like the Cool School Stories book we have of Ella and Olivia. Right. Which is another sister series, except the ages are younger. Mm-hmm. Ella is seven and Olivia is five and a half. And you quite enjoy that series of books, don't you? Yes, I've got an entire rainbow collection. My goodness, how many books is that? Twenty. Goodness, you are lucky. Wow, Elizabeth, you put us in our place. And I think that you are an extraordinary example of what happens when people 
apply themselves. And I think you're a fantastic example, as your grandmother will tell us, of what happens with neuroplasticity. Although but I am really into reading, and I am super good with English, I can say and spell cardiopulmonary resuscitation. You can. Yep. I'll show you. C A R D I O P U L M A N A R Y hyphen R S C I T I-O-N. I don't think I would be able to spell cardiopulmonary resuscitation in front of a microphone. <laughs> so I think you're fantastic, Elizabeth. And Christine and Elizabeth, your story for me is magical because it tells us something about seeing that is not obvious at all. How the brain processes the information from our eyes makes sense out of what we see. And both of you present really interesting ways in which you look at the world. Very different ways of looking at the world. Very challenging yes. ways. One short-sighted and one's a VIP. But somehow both of you are making great strides forwards. So I'm most impressed. And thank you very, very much for talking with me today. Thank you for the opportunity. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or anything you'd like to ask me, Elizabeth? Well, what was your life like as a paediatrician? My life was quite fun as a paediatrician. I used to look after babies. That was the bit of my life that I enjoyed the most when I was a doctor. Babies were good for me because I could see just about the whole of a baby at any one moment. If I tried to look at a big person, I found that I couldn't see that much of them, and I found that much more difficult. So I loved babies because I could see them, I thought, reasonably well. Okay. So we were... Did you get your vision impairment later in life, or was it just general? Did you I... get it when you were a baby, like me? I had my visual impairment when I was young, so when I was a child, I had, and I don't like the word, tunnel vision. I don't like the word because it makes you think that you're looking down a black hole at something, and there's no blackness in the vision that I can't see. I just don't see it. A bit like oh. your granny. Yes. So I had that tunnel vision since I was young and then it stayed with me all my life and then very gradually my middle vision the central vision has got worse and now I can't do the doctoring part but that's fine I don't mind oh right do you want to know how I what my eyes are affected by yes please it's so I have a genetic condition and I have inherited from both my mother and father a version of a gene that doesn't work. 
and that gene makes a protein in my eye and the gene is called the eyes shut homologue but it's not eyes it's EYS shut homologue and I don't know where you can find that gene but I think you have to look at fishes to be able to find that gene working but as it turns out that protein that that gene codes for is necessary for how the eyes function and without it you can't see the sideways you lose your peripheral vision so okay. that's the problem that I have I don't really think of it as a problem and I don't really think that you think yourself as a problem either this is just what we have and it means that we see things differently yes and this is a quote from a video about dyslexia you should try to not only see the world through a person's eyes yet understand it through their brains brilliant thank Excellent. you for that it's a really good way to <sighs> finish this Elizabeth. conversation fantastic Elizabeth tēnā koutou wahiki tēnē kopapa. Hairi i runga i nā manākitanga. Ka kitiano e te Thanks for listening. Bye for now. This show was first broadcast on Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM, thanks to New Zealand On Air.